Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, buckle up. Today, we have a fascinating character by the name of Hamish McLennan. Hamish, uh, for those of you too young to know, was uh, one of the industry's leading figures probably 15, 20 years ago when he uh, defected, if you like, from the leading agency group at the time, George Patterson, to run Y&R and, and, and got chummy with uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, who was probably Martin Sorrell at the time. But Hamish is here. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with him about a whole bunch of things. Currently, Hamish is the chairman of the REA group. It's got a market cap of $12 billion. It's going global in all sorts of different markets. He's chairman of Here, There and Everywhere, the media company, the radio company, with a market cap of $520-odd million. And he's deputy chairman of Magellan, which is a investment firm with funds under management of about $83 billion and a market cap of $9 billion. Hamish is a traverser of a whole bunch of different industries. As I said, 20 years ago, he was in a big agency group. He then, after his global term as CEO and chairman of YNR, the YNR network from WPP, he left there to join the office of the chairman of News Corp. Sounds like someone called Rupert Murdoch. Uh, he was there for a term, came back to Australia, become CEO of the Network 10, and now he's in those uh, those positions we talked about. Welcome, Hamish. It was a long intro, but there's a lot to cover, and we've got some very interesting, I think, uh, big themes coming at a whole bunch of different parts of the industry at the moment, and, and, and I'm really interested to see, firstly, I guess, in your old sweet spot in around communications and advertising agencies and communications companies, what is going on? There's a lot of pressure on the industry. You've been back and stood back from it for a while now. What do you see going on? What is happening? Uh, and do you see there's any any light at the end of the tunnel for these companies that are under a lot of pressure, the WPPs, the publicists, the IPGs and the Omnicoms and the advertising agencies uh, where you've cut your teeth? What do you make of what's going on at the moment? A lot, lot of change, a lot of uh, disintermediation. Uh, I think the thing that struck me more than anything is that the tech titans have got more power than we've ever seen in our lifetime uh, in terms of how media has evolved over the last 150 years. That comes down to their market dominance when you talk about you know the big ones like Amazon, Facebook, Google um, and so forth. Uh, my, my concern is that behind their walled gardens, it's very hard for external marketing communication companies to, to operate. Um, counter to that, you've had incredible pressure on the creative businesses and I don't think the uh, the way they were set up, if you look at the multinational ad agencies that had media embedded in them you know, from years gone by, if you look after the Second World War, the, the uh, agencies followed the American multinationals around the world and um, now with technology, you've just got less of a need to sort of have an office in every market and I saw that when I was at YNR, I'd travel to... Azerbaijan or go to China or you name, you know, what regional city. And what I saw from 2006 to 2011 was pretty much the same consumption habits in terms of how people were digesting media. And um, and there was just less of a need for us to have people in, in every office in every market. So let's go to the fact that you were once quite tight with Sir Martin. I'm not sure when you last spoke to him or whether you sort of high-five each other now. I'm not sure it got... Uh, the, the word was it got acrimonious at one stage. But the point that I... It never I stri- did. It never, never did. did. No, he was very fair. I came back for family reasons. What I would say at the time, though, was that I was seeing 
the marketing communications landscape change around me. But that wasn't the driving factor. I came back. He, you know, he was he was very good to me, and I've got nothing but good things to say about him. So, um, so well, let's just see if I can find something there, which is the the um, this scathing position he has on his old firm at WPP. The, the the thing that I struggle to reconcile with is that he is tearing that down now and criticising it. But essentially it was his engine, it was his architecture, it was his baby that was what it is, it is what it is because of him. And he didn't necessarily make those changes that he was, uh, while he stood at WPP, before he got ousted from WPP. I just don't understand how that works. What am I missing? Look, he can speak better for his own comments than I can. I, I think when he was in the WPP cockpit, he did everything he possibly could to, to keep it going. I think... And I'm only just suspecting this, that once outside it, you know, he's able to have a different view on the industry in the, the cold, hard light of day. Maybe that's informing his decision. Um, so is he He is then S4, you think the strike, what he's trying to do at S4, which is essentially a data-led play, isn't it, and media, you like that as a new world model? I think it's an intelligent start, but don't forget he's coming from a very different place. So this just shows you that when you look at the big four holding companies, it's very hard to change those structures. And look... You know, I'm not saying that I would have made any major differences if I was running, you know, one of the holding companies. Perhaps I would have lent a lot more towards Hollywood. Um, There's a lot of talk about data plays at the moment. um, And I think that's, whilst it's important, you know, I think it's a hard one to, I think a lot of big bets will actually be made before, you know, we see who the winner is there. And so Martin, as he's referred to in the media is running a peanut compared to or as a coconut now, I think, yes. uh, compared to some of the other um, holding companies. But, you know, he's building a business from a fresh, clean start. So he's he's obviously got, you know, his own vision and mission for that business. And, and I'd argue, he, you know, he's got it all in front of him, you know, in terms of what he creates without any of those old-style legacy structures. Well, there was also some fabulous conjecture about Hamish McLennan being in, at least in the front-running or the shortlist to, to run speculation. WPP CEO, Wentz Martin has gone. It's outrageous speculation. Is that what it is? That what it is? <laughs> As written up in the Wall Street Journal. Yes. Uh, so, so, you know... Never I, trust I, a journalist? I, I, I'm, no, I always trust a journalist. I might have had a conversation or two along the way. Were you interested? Yeah, I, I thought it was a fascinating intellectual challenge. And I was going to, which gets me to the next spin. Uh, what would you do hypothetically if you were at any of the holding companies now? When you're with, with the background you've got, wh- where would you start? What would you do? What would you do with WP? Well, let's get even closer to home. What would you do with WP Australia? We've got the new CEO just in town and landed. What would you do? I, I'd rather answer that question by looking at it from a global perspective. I I think there was an opportunity five or six years ago to invest heavily in and around Hollywood. And the business that I liked the most was CAA. Right. TPG came in and bought it, and I think they've done very That's well It's a private equity company, right? Yeah, it is. But, yep. you know, CAA was synonymous with, you know, managing talent and then under Michael Ovitz eventually moving uh, into the packaging up of creative content, movies and so forth. And I think that they're um, at the centre of it at the moment, and I think that there was a very smart investment for them at the time. So... I, is that I, about pop culture or in, in influencing? What, what was it about Hollywood and CAA that you liked? There are a number of things I like about it. I, I think I think uh, the cutting edge of culture is really important. I think their ability to package up concepts and intellectual property and charge for them is really clever. And I think they do that better than anyone in the world. And I think if you wanted to find a way of differentiating your business and then 
pumping that into the networks, that would have been a perfect way to do it because they are really at the epicentre of what's happening from a, from a culture point of view. And look at what's happening with the, with the media businesses that are getting traded at the moment. So to, to me, I think there's a cue there that, that I think is important. So that would have been a, a, a growth stream, but it wouldn't have dealt with some of the legacy issues that the broader holding company had, or would you reinvent the agency networks to incorporate that into a holding well, company. Well, you're right. They're octopuses. So you've got to unpack each and every one of those major businesses. So the creative businesses, you know, need need investment and need a very different strategy for, say, the, the media businesses. So well, it does I don't get know if we've got enough a, time now to yeah, go through each right. and every one of them. So it does get us to, though, this this Hollywood example you talk about. Obviously, a, a locally grown agency, Droga Fire, was owned by another arrival uh, talent agency to CAA yeah. uh, with probably similar intent and strategic intent on that. That kind of didn't work out. And funnily enough, Droga's now with a consulting firm or a technology firm in, in a centre interactive. But if we backpack, why didn't the Droga thing work when out of all the options out there, that was probably one that could have worked? We well, see, I, I don't know what happened when the deal was put together. So I think you've got to sort of ask the partners because I think with a lot of M&A, it's about alignment and chemistry and having a shared vision. So it's hard for me to answer in that, that way. But I think I think there was probably a belief at the time that from David's perspective, he would have got fed work out of, you know, out of Hollywood and a different type of work. And then perhaps, you know, it was reciprocal that he would have driven clients towards his partners. But now he's gone to Accenture, there's all, all manner of, again, rumblings about what happens with the holding companies and the consulting firms. You got any thoughts on what might become there, what could be? Look, there are whispers in the marketplace that some of the big private equity firms are running their ruler over some of the holding companies. I don't know if that's true. If it is, it sort of opens up a really interesting, you know, spectre, is it... Um, is it the type of investment they would make and then hive some of the businesses off and then break them up? What would happen if one of the holding companies with a number of creative arms, creative networks, hive some of them off? If one or two of them were then put onto the market, what would that look like? So I think it's a hypothetical, but I think it's a real discussion that we should have at the moment. I think it's a possibility, and I think there's been a lot of talk that the um, the consultancies would also like to have a crack or at least talk to some of the holding companies. And they're certainly encroaching on their business. Look at what Accenture's doing with their uh, data play their um, online trading and so forth. And so all of them have identified marketing services as, as a big opportunity. If you're a betting man, um, what sort of odds would you put on something happening between any of those parties you talked about, private equity, consulting? Do you think something will happen? Yeah, I do. Over mm. the next you know, three to five years, I think something could happen. And, and the more those businesses become under pressure, I think I think something will happen. Uh, the breakout. And, and, and I, th- and I think... You know, it, it could be a combination of both. Combination of both in what, in what term? A private equity teaming up with, right. you know, another party or, or one of the consulting firms. And this is where it starts to get interesting, right? Because if you talk about a breakup, suddenly you might have a creative agency network that's global that might be what, a standalone on its own. Does that suddenly inject some competitive pressure innovation on where these businesses, how they reinvent themselves much faster because they're not uh, reporting upstream to a giant company? What, what, yeah. what, do you, what do you think happens? Well, I think precisely that does happen where you'll have a, a different offering. So if you were to take one of the creative networks and pair that with uh, one of the consultancies, I think that's a really fascinating hypothetical. So would they put more data into those businesses? How, how would they go to market? 
I mean, there's no doubt that the consultancy have done a very good job of getting into the boardrooms, and it's a very and I see that from my time as a you know as a board member and a chairman. There's a lot of sophistication around their thinking, what they're offering. They can't offer the creative services anywhere near where the holding companies are at at the moment, but it it is compelling to a point. And certainly when you wrap IT into their ability to migrate uh, old platforms to new ones, there is a lot of value in terms of what they talk about. So it then leaves you to the question, what what happens with the holding companies in their current form? And each of the the, the four big ones have different strengths in terms of geographic coverage and, and their service offering. Um, I think the data investments are really important. Do you believe that you need to own a first-party data company or can you rent that data yourself? I, I happen to come, you know, to the second school of thought in that regard because, um, you know, there are multiple data sources that are out there at the moment. So renting is, is your would, would be your preferred? Yeah, I think so, right. coupled with what, what you have. But yeah. Right, and so that that starts to, you know, if you look at a holding company uh, lineup, that starts to put you aligned more to an Omnicom model than it does an IPG or a Dentsu where they've acquired data businesses. Omnicom yeah. talks about sort of building and renting, not owning. So if the renting approach is where you'd go, it doesn't put a lot of pressure on these. If there's a breakup like you talk about, it means some of these networks don't necessarily have to acquire a whole bunch of assets like Samartin is at the moment. Well, I think you've got to look at who the parties are out there who want scale. So you could take a media business from one holding company and package it up with another. So mm. it depends on what the need is for the acquirer. I mean, I, I think some of the the large consultancies would salivate having a creative arm. And so if you could repurpose one of the traditional agencies um, and make them more digitally led, then I think that's potentially... Um, an opportunity. Well, as an aside, one of your old lieutenants is clearly Russell Howcroft, who's the chief creative officer at PwC. Culturally, can those organisations, they possibly can't now, but do you think they can entertain a large creative component to their businesses? It's, it's the, You hear different rumblings about how that gets integrated into the businesses, Accenture and the Monkeys, Accenture and Droga, Kamarama in the UK. Yeah. There is, you talk to some of the creative guys in there, they do say we have some work to do in reconciling some of the different cultures. Do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I think you've got to define what you want though. But look, there. They're initial tepid steps, in my opinion. I mean, when I ran Wanar, we had 184-odd offices across, you know, 120 markets, so you just don't need that anymore. So if if the view is we're going to take, you know, what I would call first-tier markets or maybe the top 12 by size, that's a good place to start. The question then becomes, once you've acquired those agencies, do you want them to be culturally aligned around a similar set of values and philosophy and what's their creative orientation or are you just going to let them run independently? So, I mean, I think even David Droger sort of struggled to get Droger off the ground. I mean, they had initial success in Australia, but it's a it's a powerhouse in North America. So, London was a bit harder too. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, um, it's hard running these businesses. So, you've just got to determine what it is that you want. So, I, I think... It's reasonable to assume that the consultancies will continue to buy creative businesses. Now, when you talk about the hypothetical breakup of some of these holding companies, um, how interesting is that for you to play in one of those breakouts, if you like? Oh, look, no, no one's approached me. I'm busy as it is at the moment, but it's it's more an intellectual sort of conversation to have at the moment. But I think it's a real one at the moment, and I do I do find it interesting. So we'll see what happens in the next few years. But uh, I think you've got to look at it and say, well. 
where does the media business go of one of those holding companies? And then how would you how would you join a crowded business up with another potential party? The interesting thing there is that the the market certainly under your watch, and you started what? Well, gee, um, I know you were one of the golden boys at George Patterson in the nineties, but nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. We see you are old. Mm. Um, Tell me about it. The game at the time from the mid nineties on was all about volume, right? It was about scale and volume in, yeah. on a, on the media side at least. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changing now. So when you Think about the private equity guys, and they're smart people with their numbers people, and they run their ruler over that. Is it simply they see the breakup being a better enterprise value they can extract for those businesses, or do they see them as as potentially growth businesses? What's the trigger for them to be so interested? Look, uh, all the private equity firms have a different orientation, so I would say uh, all want growth, but typically the good ones want to see what they can package up with the investment that they've got. So, you know, my, my sense is they've got to have a vision. But, but you know, if, if all things fail, they'll break them up as well. Or they might hive off, you know, certain sections of businesses. So, you, you know, the very fact that you're looking at WPP at the moment and they've done that deal, I think, with Bain Capital to sell 60% of... Kantar, I think. Kantar, yeah. then, you know, there is a preparedness for them to trade some of those assets. You're right. There's a precedent there, isn't there? Yeah. So let's switch gears a bit, Tom. Let's get into media with your media hat on, at least um, at uh, HTE. Now it's essentially a radio company. You've sort of hinted that you might be in- interested in some investments. We haven't seen a lot of activity other than the Nine and Fairfax uh, mm. deal in M&A in this market. The, the rules, the regulations now say the market can. Why haven't we seen the activity? And are you uh, acquisitive? So I think the government was five years too slow, too late in terms of changing the media laws, and I think that's really hurt the industry. Specifically, as for HTE, we're in great shape. So you know, our survey results came out today, and we were number one again. So we're pleased with the investment back into the core radio business. Yeah, and Gold FM did very well in Melbourne. So we're we're you know really pleased with the way it's going nationally, uh, and the, there's momentum in the business and the trajectory is really good. So so we're pleased with what Kieran and his team have done. Um, I, we we will look at bolt on ac- acquisitions, but we're we're in a dream position at the moment. We've got no debt. Um, sure, there's more work that we need to do, and we've got a hundred million odd dollars sitting in the bank. So. I'm, I'm a big believer in radio. I think it's a great medium. We can do more around the core. So if there are some bolt-on acquisitions, we'll, we'll do that. And then we'll just see how the market goes over the next six to 12 months. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a bear in the advertising markets at the moment. I can just feel that it's tightening it up, tightening up at the moment. I think the government sort of just cut their rates or the RBA cut their rates today. So I don't think there's a lot of juice left in the economy, um, but hopefully I'm wrong. You know, I think there's just a potential slowdown there. But, you know, again, I'm not giving a forecast for, for anyone here and now. It's just, you know, my views that uh, there is potentially just a bit of tightening up there on the horizon, but I could be wrong. I mean, these, these sort of monetary measures may work very well for the economy. We'll see. Would you prefer to be acquired than acquire? At HTE. No, no, no. We're, we're here to grow the business for sure. Um, there are rumblings that News Corp might want to exit its stake and it might be offloading with an investment market. Is there uh, anything in that? I haven't heard that, so I don't know. I haven't spoken to them about that. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing happening there. That's my point. Um, so the broader action in the market, uh, in the media sector, you know, you talked about the there is a lot of pressure on the ad market at the moment. Um, mm. So for media stocks and media companies, is really the outlook about consolidation 
versus growth for them for, for media companies? Is that is it, it's consolidation and cost out as opposed to top line growth and we can get some share grow the market? I think for what I'll term the traditional sector, it's about consolidation, getting cost out and redefining your offering. So that's really important. You just need to look at the car sales and the REAs of this world. Their value is just so great. So, I mean, we're actually $14 billion at REA Group now. Right. Um, you know, the share price is $110. So there's just no way one of the traditional media companies could, could afford to, to sort of buy. So I think what we need to do at HTE is just be selective and just keep our powder dry and we'll, we'll monitor the market over the next 12 months. No loss and not being part of a portfolio group. You could argue that Nine now is probably the media company with momentum at the moment and it's built, a port, built out a portfolio, not dissimilar to News Corp, but a different way. Those standalone business, like you're essentially a radio company, is it okay to just be a radio company and not be part of a broader... So it's a great question. It seems a little counterintuitive for me because I've always been one who looks for scale. And on the whole, I would say that is really important uh, in any business if you, if you can look for that. We're, we're a highly focused audio company. Uh, radio's got 8% of the advertising market and has done for many years and it's holding up. So I think with, with our recent investment back into our core product and the results that we're starting to deliver at the moment in terms of ratings, and you know better than anyone if you get your ratings and your survey results up, the revenue will follow. So there's as much to be said for being highly focused and nimble, and that's what we are at the moment. So, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable where we're at at the moment. I don't feel threatened at all. But, we'll, you know, we'll see. Just to counter on that, though, if you look at the buy side of the market, whether you're talking marketers with their in-house programmatic uh, operations or media agencies and their buying, they do want to reduce complexity in the number of suppliers that are coming to them because of the pressure on their own business to be efficient and streamlined. So just coming back to that portfolio versus singular company, if you're one group versus someone who can bundle a whole lot of things up, there must be – what's the way around that? That, that? that is definitely a market demand. I, I think – on the whole, though, media buyers will look at any potential media asset and unpack it and then look at it individually. So if we've got momentum, I mean, we've reinvested back in looking at how we redefine audio and that's our positioning and that's what Kieran's been taking to the market. Huge traction with that already, even though it's early days. Well, what does that look like? Well, it just looks like how we take our DAB signal um Package it with our uh, with our traditional radio offering. Look at how we inject greater creativity into the ideas that we put to, in front of clients, um, and that's all the the basic stuff at the moment, as well as a podcasting strategy. We've got iHeart at the core of what we're doing now, which is you know one of the largest streaming platforms in the world, and we've renewed that contract out to two thousand and thirty six, which is you know part of the big US conglomerate, as, as you know. So. There's a lot of good stuff in there that uh, our our advertisers like at the moment and we're really focused just on execution at the moment and it will deliver results. Do you think radio's in a better spot than television? You've been a, a CEO of, a, of, of Network yeah. 10. Um, I'm fascinated to see what you think about where broadcast TV is going. One of your old foes, industry colleagues, James Warburton, has gone back to seven. Um, what, are the, what are the prospects? They're, they're great businesses to work in and I love television but like advertising agencies, they need to redefine their offering. And so, you know, their, their competition so much isn't radio, but they've got these massive cost structures. So if you just think of putting the news to air every night and the output deals that you've got with US studios and so forth, 
Um, they're, they're high cost businesses which have a lot of advertiser pressure around them at the moment. And then I think you've just got to look at what's happening in the tech market where you've got highly sophisticated platforms that are able to deliver data and um, efficiency to, to marketers. And there's a huge uptake of that. Which, you know, and it's you, low you cost, know, right? It's and, low and cost. it is low cost, so yeah. it's very compelling. So the problem that you have with traditional businesses is that it's not so much that you'll have structural decline and you'll lose 30% overnight. That that typically doesn't happen, but it's the 5% every year that you lose to your competitors. And that's what we've been seeing for 10 or 15 years now. Right. And that's what I lament. When I was at 10, the government just didn't see that. And I, I just wished that with, that with or without what I was doing, more companies were enabled to merge or be acquired because I think they would have been able to get scale and redefine their offering when it mattered most against the tech companies. And in many ways, I think the horse has bolted. Mm. To be fair, though, there was not agreement from many of the broadcasters or media companies on what that deregulation should look like. And that stymied a little bit of, of what the government could do because they couldn't get people on board. They could have been brave, I guess. It's probably the flip side to it. That's true. But I think there was a lack of understanding about what was happening with the tech companies. Mm. And I think that's getting played out now. Right. It's exactly right. And so your, your prognosis for broadcast television in the next five is... Can they strike back? Can they hold at least? Can they stop the rot? Or is it managing a declining business until there's nothing? No, there will always be TV networks, that's for sure. So, um, you know, what what the owners of the TV networks have to do is redefine their offering so that they talk in the same language that I think the tech companies talk. So that's what's your advertising proposition, how do you get a market, uh, what's the role of data in your offering, but they've got to address their cost structures. And and I think that's the biggest task. Now, we're going to wind up just a little bit with uh, a touch on the, the investment side of the business, Magellan. A fascinating business, huge business. I mean, Amazing uh, business. Amazing business. Well, you're about to tell us about that because there's $83 billion or thereabouts. Under, 92. Under, okay, so I'm really out with my numbers <laughs> at the moment. $92 billion in funds under management. Market cap of maybe 9 or $10 billion. Correct, yeah. Okay, good. Got that one right. Firstly, how does an, an ad guy transition to a giant investment firm? How, how does that happen? For, first up, you're a board director and now you're deputy chairman. So what what happened? Look, I think it'd be fair to say there's a fair degree of simpatico between the founder, Hamish, and, and myself, Hamish Douglas. I think he's a, he's a world-class operator and, and actually one of the best that I've ever dealt with. So, you know, we, we connect around business. I mean, I've got a fair degree of uh, board experience now, which I leverage. Uh, I think what I would say too is that the board director's on, on the Magellan board are diverse and they're first class in their own right. So my skill set is just different. So it complements what was already there. And I think I help solve problems, you know. Um, governance is a huge and important um, part of what Magellan does and needs to do, being a financial services firm. Um, and uh, we do talk, you know, about brand. And so Hamish is very savvy when it comes to how, how do we communicate the Magellan brand, what does it stand for and what's important. Right, and so I do want to quote Hamish. I think it was in The Australian. He said um, that you bring, quote, enormous skill to the board around branding and marketing. He has different skills. That's Hamish McLennan has different skills than other directors to bring to the table, especially around international business and marketing. Now, this is a really hot topic in the marketing world mm-hmm. in that we are seeing marketing struggle a little bit uh, or more than a little bit in terms of its credibility at the boardroom. 
what sort of conversations do you have around this and what are they asking of you and what are you and how are you articulating what the hell brand and marketing does for a business? So what I've found over the years is that if the business is performing and hitting its targets, brand is less of a concern usually. I mean, there's just no one rule here, but but yeah, I, I find that there is uh, a desire and a need amongst a lot of board members to better understand it, and I think we might be seeing a new wave of people who understand media and communication and, and tech, so wrap that up into a yeah. bundle. I think they have a real role to play, whether it be for crisis management, how do we go to market, can you inform the board as a skill set on what you're seeing in the market. So tying tying that back to um, Magellan, I mean, that's a small part of what we all do, I guess, on on the board. So it's a, it's a board of diverse skills. But what I would say is that Hamish Douglas um, has, has worked really hard to make sure that those diverse skill sets all complement each other. And what sort of questions are you asked by your fellow board directors uh, about that fuzzy game called brand, media and marketing? What, what, do they look at you intriguingly? It's an entertaining it, it, industry. It, it depends on the board, the industry and, and what you're in. I mean, when you look at Magellan, you go, what a huge opportunity to capitalise on the momentum the business has got. REA Group is a holding company for a range of different brands. Um, HT&E. I think we've got to do a bit of work on that brand itself. I think it's probably one of the most confusing yes. um, and, and uh, silly holding company names that I've ever heard. But uh, but but you know more on that later. So it really just depends on the sector that you're in. Yeah. Look, we're out of time, but I want to wind up with uh, the final question, which is: uh, in the next twelve to twenty-four months, Hamish, is there any calm coming, or is it more chaos and complexity for everyone? I think chaos and complexity is the new norm now, so I think we're going to see more of that. If you see a dip in the economy here locally, I think it will be, you know, a little a little more chaotic. But, but again, businesses that are run efficiently, that uh, um, know what they stand for, I think will do well and prosper. But if your question's tied more to what's happening in traditional media, I think you'll see some players will suffer if they don't look at how they go to market and get cost out of the business. Well, I think we'll... Lock in another time for some more conjecture about what happens with the holding companies uh, and private equity firms. I think it's a fascinating one and the media business. Hamish McLennan, thank you and we will loop around next time. For more copy, stories, themes, trends, go to mi-3.com.au. We'll see you next week. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Jennifer Goggin, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode.